On a cold winter's night in 1909, a couple in New Jersey were startled out of a deep sleep. A loud rustling outside their home had awoken them. Groggy, Mr. and Mrs. Evans walked over to the bedroom window to look for whatever had made such a racket. Maybe it was a raccoon rifling through their trash, or worse, an intruder trying to sneak into their yard. What they found, though, was beyond either of their wildest dreams. The Evanses peered out their upstairs window to find a hideous creature perched on their shed. It scratched at the roof and flapped its leathery wings. Transfixed, the couple watched the mysterious creature. It appeared to have a head like a collie dog and the face of a horse. Even crouched down, it was about three and a half feet tall, its long neck extended toward the sky. Oddly, the animal's feet were like horse's hooves, and it had large wings sprouting out of its back. After a few minutes of gazing outside, the couple finally came to their senses. Mr. Evans opened the window to shoo the monster away. It responded with a bark, then flapped its wings and took off into the night. They didn't know it yet, but the husband and wife had just encountered an animal that would go on to stalk hundreds of their fellow townspeople across the Pine Barrens. And for years, like many other witnesses, Mr. and Mrs. Evans would struggle to explain what they'd seen. The Jersey Devil had seemingly disappeared a century before, but Mr. and Mrs. Evans were the first witnesses to its return. In days, the beast would wreak havoc on the state once more. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Jersey Devil, a mysterious scripted that has haunted the Pine Barrens of New Jersey for over 250 years. Last time, we discussed the creature's birth and the most notable sightings from the last three centuries, from Commodore Decatur to the Week of Terror in 1909. Today, we'll delve into the possible explanations for how the Jersey Devil came into being. We'll cover scientific theories, from rare animals to mass hallucinations, and the possibility that early colonial squabbling could be responsible for Jersey Devil lore. Finally, we'll uncover the ways that locals exploited the legend, profiting off of opportunistic hoaxes. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. While many residents of the Pine Barrens believe in the Jersey Devil, several are skeptical. Anatomical descriptions of the cryptid, with its wings, fur, and hooves, defy logic. No known animal has naturally evolved all these features. Scientists have suggested an alternate explanation. Other animals could be mistaken for the Jersey Devil. 
Consider the sandhill crane, a very large bird with an average wingspan of six feet. Sandhill cranes often migrate from Canada and the northern U.S. down to Florida, which puts New Jersey right in their flight path. These birds have grayish-brown plumage and heads with bright red tufts. Perhaps their red crowns, along with their giant wings, make them appear more demonic than natural, especially in the darkness of night. Sandhill cranes also have a high-pitched call that sounds like a screech. This could be the same shriek that people often attribute to the Jersey Devil. It's possible that people who are unfamiliar with the bird could hear its scream or see its wings in the distance and assume it's something much scarier. This explanation doesn't totally hold up, though, when you consider the beast's tracks. The sandhill crane has typical bird feet with three claws, unlike the devil's cloven hooves. Additionally, many Jersey Devil sightings have happened in the winter, including the Week of Terror in 1909. Normally, the Sandhill Crane would be farther south by that time of year. But another bird might fit the description people often give of the Jersey Devil. Similar to the crane, the great horned owl has a wingspan of up to five feet. However, it's harder to confuse an owl for the Jersey Devil due to its light gray plumage and hooting call. That said, it does have two ear tufts that could be mistaken for horns under the right light. And the owl's massive sharp talons could explain the livestock killings linked to the Jersey Devil. The great horned owl hunts large prey like rabbits, cats, and dogs. Their strong talons can grip with the force of 28 pounds, which is similar to a guard dog's bite. Great horned owls tend to attack their prey from the head. Several so-called Jersey Devil killings indicated that pigs and sheep had scratch marks on their heads. They're so territorial, the owls have been highly aggressive toward humans who get too close to their nests. In 2012, several joggers in Seattle were attacked by a great horned owl in a park. It scratched angrily at their heads as they ran away. In other cases, some victim scratches have been deep enough to require stitches. It's also possible that both the great horned owl and sandhill crane have been misidentified as the Jersey Devil. Sightings go back as far as 1735, when early British colonizers were unfamiliar with the animals in the New World. To their eyes, any new species could be a fantastical monster simply because of their ignorance. But the Jersey Devil may have lurked in the Pine Barrens long before European settlers arrived. It may even predate the Leni Lenape. Some cryptozoologists believe the devil is a surviving prehistoric species, perhaps a pterodactyl that somehow survived the dinosaur's extinction. Pterodactyls bear a striking resemblance to the Jersey Devil. It's easy to see why people may have likened the two, since both are large-winged creatures with leathery skin and a pointed head. Professor Breitkopf of the School of Science in Philadelphia suggested that these animals could have been trapped in limestone caves for millennia. There, they'd have access to fresh water, air, and food. As volcanic activity changed the landscape, it's possible that a rogue pterosaur escaped above ground. 
Then it terrorized townspeople in its confusion. However, this possibility was proposed in the 1800s when paleontology was an emerging field. It has since been disproven. While it's interesting to think about how a pterodactyl from eons ago could survive today, it's virtually impossible for this to happen. First, a pterodactyl would need the right conditions to survive, like food, fresh air, water, and heat. Pterodactyls ruled the skies 150 million years ago, when the Earth's carbon dioxide levels were higher and the planet was much hotter. There were no permanent polar ice caps, and places like Greenland had tropical climates. It's possible that dinosaurs and related species like pterodactyls were warm-blooded, but it's hard to say for sure. If any pterodactyls had outlived the rest of their species, they very well could have frozen to death during the Ice Age. If any creatures did survive, they'd have to rapidly adapt from a warm, moist, open sky to a damp, dark cave. On top of that, a sizable population would have needed to keep reproducing over many generations. Otherwise, they would have succumbed to inbreeding. And it's hard to imagine a large flock of pterodactyls would have gone unnoticed for millions of years. Ultimately, this scenario feels too implausible to give any credence to it. But the accounts of the Jersey Devil had to come from somewhere. And perhaps a grain of truth lies in one of the most outlandish stories, that of Mother Leeds, who gave birth to a cursed child. As unlikely as it sounds, Mother Leeds may have been a real person, and her husband might have created the Jersey Devil. Coming up, we meet the Leeds family. It's October 20th, 2018, one day until the end of the world. I'm on the compound of a secretive religious organization, interviewing a longtime member. Their leader has predicted that tomorrow will be the beginning of the apocalypse. The prediction? Yes, I am prepared. It will purify life from a lot of illusions. When I started working on this story, I was hoping to profile a unique apocalyptic group that had survived through many failed doomsday predictions. But the end of the world was just the beginning. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. I didn't specifically give my consent. I was frozen at the time. The angels, they arranged that he is supposed to have sex with his students. He is an amazing teacher, and also he's a sick f This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd. Now, back to the story. In all likelihood, some sightings of the Jersey Devil may have been simple cases of misidentification. Townspeople confused the creature with local birds. But that only scratches the surface of this famous monster's rich backstory. As you'll recall from our first episode, the most common tale associated with its origin is that of Mother Leeds. The exasperated parent of 12 became pregnant with a 13th child. She cursed the unborn baby, saying, Let this be the devil. The infant was born, only to quickly morph into the monstrous creature, the Jersey Devil. It escaped out the family's chimney and has been flying around, terrorizing the residents of the Pine Barrens ever since. While this story is widely accepted, 
The real history of the Leeds family may hold clues about the devil's true origins. Hailing from England, they were some of the first European settlers to colonize the region in the 1600s. Patriarch Daniel Leeds moved to modern-day Burlington around 1677, where a new Quaker settlement was being established. But the Quakers were arriving on land that was already occupied. The Lenny Lenape people were native to the Pine Barrens region. Although the Quakers believed in pacifism, they still bought land that wasn't theirs to purchase. And as they settled into their ill-gotten homes, they heard Lenny Lenape folktales and stories about forest dragons and water spirits. Because these tales were different from Quaker oral traditions, perhaps the colonizers blended the ideas into a new narrative, the story of the Jersey Devil. Some non-native historians suggested that Masingu, a deity from the Lenape legend, was the precursor to the Jersey Devil. They described a deer-like creature with wings. However, the Lenape people usually depicted Masingu as a spirit who protected the forest. With its half-black, half-red face, the spirit rode on the back of a deer. It seems this description was lost in translation. In his book, The Secret History of the Jersey Devil, Author Brian Regal explained how the Jersey Devil could have evolved as a diluted version of Lenape traditions. He wrote, quote, The Pine Barrens had its supernatural inhabitants reduced to a single Anglo-American entity. The Jersey Devil's transformation is thus also an ethnic one. Its Lenape heritage filtered out and forgotten. But Daniel Leeds probably wasn't thinking about the way Lenape culture was being erased when he first arrived in the Americas. He began his career as a tradesman and soon became more involved in Burlington's growing community. He accepted a position as member of the local assembly and later as a surveyor general, where he dealt with land purchases and boundary drawing. Daniel was well-educated and liked reading about science, math, and astrology. Unfortunately, these topics usually contradicted Quaker ideology, and Daniel butted heads with his peers. They believed that a person could only connect with God through scripture, not through the scientific method or astrology. But Daniel thought he could sway his peers, possibly by writing almanacs. An almanac is a detailed calendar of the upcoming year, it often includes climate predictions, tide schedules, astrological phenomena, and local holidays and festivals. They often contain humorous jokes and inspirational quotes, like Easter eggs for the reader. Daniel thought that an almanac would be the perfect medium to spread his philosophy and musings on life. The Leeds Almanac was released in 1687, the first of its kind to be published in New Jersey. But rather than praise Daniel for his work, Quaker leaders criticized the book. They disliked the inclusion of astrology and felt that the language he used was too pagan. They were so displeased, they ordered all the copies to be burned. Humiliated but not defeated, Daniel doubled down and continued sharing his views. In addition to the banned almanacs, he began writing books that were openly critical of the Quaker lifestyle. 
This was all it took for the rift between Daniel Leeds and the Quaker community to become irreparable. Leeds stopped identifying as a Quaker, while religious leaders accused him of heresy and consorting with the devil. Around town, whispers claimed Daniel was Satan's harbinger, a serious accusation at the time. In the 1600s, it was common belief that the devil worked with humans to do his bidding. Linking someone with Satan was essentially character assassination. Daniel Leeds' reputation would outlive him, and it tarnished his family's standing. Many people believed they were cursed, too. When Daniel died in 1720, his son, Titan, took over the almanac business. Titan intended to bury the Leeds family's bad reputation with his father, but a new rival thwarted his plans. Around this time, American founding father Benjamin Franklin decided to try his hand at writing. At the age of 23, he just bought a printing press and a paper called the Pennsylvania Gazette. Franklin realized that the almanac business represented a lucrative opportunity to build his wealth. But the Leeds Almanac, the best-selling almanac in the area, presented stiff competition. So Franklin published his competing text under the pseudonym Poor Richard Saunders. His writing style was more humorous and satirical. His irreverence bled into the way he marketed the book. Franklin realized that he might sell more copies if he instigated a feud with Titan Leeds. Franklin started by attacking the Leeds family reputation. But Titan stood his ground, and in his own almanac, he called Franklin, quote, a fool and a liar. In the next year's edition of Poor Richard's Almanac, Franklin returned a jab in the form of an astrological prediction. It prophesied that Titan Leeds would die on October 17th. October 17th came and went, and Titan survived Franklin's cruel prediction. To disprove Franklin once and for all, Titan published an entry in his own almanac announcing that he was alive and well. But Franklin brushed off Titan's words and insisted that anything inside the Leeds almanac had to have been written by the, quote, ghost of Titan Leeds. The back and forth was supposed to sell books, but it mostly confused readers. Many didn't understand that Franklin's words were written as a joke. Some actually believed that Titan was dead. Which meant Titan's publications had a mystical stigma. His words seemed to come from beyond the grave. Many assumed that Titan was communicating from hell, not heaven and devilish rumors were still swirling about his father, David. The Leeds family couldn't escape their sinister reputation. As time wore on, hearsay and rumors morphed into the story of Mother Leeds giving birth to a cursed being known as the Jersey Devil. Supposedly, the creature was born in 1735, which lines up with the height of the feud with Franklin. As each decade passed, it's possible that stories of the monsters spread around the Pine Barrens. They culminated during the Week of Terror in 1909, when the highest number of Jersey Devil sightings were recorded. But if the Jersey Devil really was a fictional legend born of an 18th century feud, 
There has to be some specific reason that so many people were allegedly seeing it over a century later. Perhaps there was more to the story, and the devil's power laid in psychology. Coming up, hallucinations and hoaxes keep the Jersey Devil alive. Now, back to the story. The Leeds family feud is inextricably linked to the birth of the Jersey Devil. But it's difficult to pinpoint why so many people reported sightings at other points in history after the Leedses faded from prominence. For example, the Week of Terror in 1909 seemed disconnected from the Quaker ideology the family opposed. In light of this, skeptics have pointed to a mass psychogenic illness, or MPI, as an explanation. More commonly known as mass hysteria, MPIs can be caused by stressors within a community. Some can be environmental, like a toxic gas or rotten food. Others are born of high-intensity situations, where emotions and anxieties literally become contagious. When the MPI strikes, a group of people are all affected by the same cluster of symptoms, like anxiety, excitement, or illnesses without a clear physical cause. For example, in the 1800s, the people of London created the British equivalent to the Jersey Devil in an alleged incident of mass psychogenic illness. Around 1837, a mysterious creature terrorized the city. Londoners called him Spring-Heeled Jack. Initial reports described a ghostly white bull charging in the street. Others featured a man wearing bearskins with claws protruding from his hands. It took several more sightings before the people reached a consensus on Spring-Heeled Jack's appearance. He was a devilish-looking man with fiery red eyes and metal claws like Edward Scissorhands. He wore a sharp suit and a long black cloak. Some suggested that he could jump very high thanks to his massive boots. Jack was called Spring-Heeled because he could leap and bound over walls and buildings that were over eight feet tall. Jack tended to attack lower-class women or lone men on quiet streets. He usually slashed at their clothes, then hopped away over buildings with acrobatic ease. After stories about Jack appeared in newspapers, the frequency of sightings increased. Everyone around the city seemed to be on guard for Spring-Heeled Jack. Many feared that he was a supernatural entity, while others thought the whole phenomenon was a hoax. But even those people kept their eyes peeled for pranksters. The Lord Mayor of London did his best to keep people calm. He claimed that the sightings had to be a group of men dressed in costumes. Multiple investigations supported his conclusion. The culprits may have been bored aristocrats. Some accused the Marquess of Waterford, even though it was nearly impossible that he was responsible. He'd left London before several incidents and later died while Spring-Heeled Jack was still supposedly terrorizing locals. If Spring-Heeled Jack was human, some of the sightings must have been false. There were too many for any one person to realistically be responsible for all of them. Given the media coverage and the citywide fear the accounts provoked, 
Some people must have attributed unrelated incidents to Jack. This seems especially likely when you consider how different the early sightings were. Remember, descriptions ranged from a white bull to a devilish humanoid. As we discussed last time, there are also many conflicting descriptions of the Jersey Devil, suggesting this was also an incident of mass psychogenic illness. Which raises the question, what triggered the hallucinations? Some incidents of mass hysteria have been linked to food poisoning. In 1951, over 300 townspeople in the French village of Pont-Saint-Esprit became sick. First, they suffered from nausea and vomiting. When those symptoms faded, they began to convulse and hallucinate. They all consumed the same rotten bread, which contained a chemical linked to the hallucinogen in LSD. Home refrigeration wasn't widely available in 1909. If all the residents of the Pine Barrens had purchased contaminated food from the same local bakery or grocer, they may have all suffered bouts of hallucination afterward. But there's no hard evidence of a food poisoning outbreak during the Jersey Devil sightings in 1909. Perhaps these hallucinations were brought on by another source, something more subliminal. In the 1800s, American journalism was a budding industry, and different publications vied for the public's attention. Some newspapers adopted strong ethical principles, while other outlets found that they could sell more copies with sensational headlines. This was the beginning of the modern tabloid. From kidnappings to natural disasters to stories of the bizarre, a popular category emerged, monster stories. Monster madness was having a heyday at the turn of the century. An 1897 paper ran a story on haunted cabs in London, and a few years later, another paper announced that a woman had married the ghost of her deceased fiancé. Many Americans trusted what the newspapers told them. If an eyewitness report of a strange creature landed on the front page, it had to be true. In some cases, newspapers didn't even use real accounts. Sometimes they simply fabricated stories to sell papers. One such publication, The New York Sun, was struggling to make sales when journalist Richard Adams Locke had a bright idea. He figured that tales of the supernatural could be given an air of credibility if paired with technical details and an expert in the field. Locke experimented with a story about life on the moon. He used the work of astronomer Sir John Herschel as inspiration and described how Herschel was able to see the moon's surface in his telescope. This part was true, but Locke went on to claim that Herschel could also see animals, plants, and even humanoid creatures. The story made the sun's sails skyrocket. Even other newspapers picked it up. But when Yale scientists demanded to see proof, Locke's scheme unraveled. He had to admit he'd made it all up. Even though the hoax had been debunked, other newspapers continued the practice time after time. Author Brian Regal believed this may have been behind the Jersey Devil's 1909 Week of Terror. Allegedly, newspaper sensationalists invented the sightings just to sell copies. In January 1909, 
multiple Philadelphia papers published reports of curious hoof prints and linked them to the Jersey Devil. The Trenton Evening Times also included an artist's depiction of the creature that eventually circulated around other papers. With more eyes on the story, panic grew, and locals reported more sightings. Any strange footprints were immediately associated with the Jersey Devil. Any animal glimpsed from afar was mistaken for the monster. As more people reported sightings, more stories were printed, resulting in an endless feedback loop. To make matters worse, a few enterprising hucksters decided to get in on the action. They created fake evidence. A man in Salem, New Jersey, admitted decades later that he'd put fake hoof prints in the snow. Not only was he pranking his neighbors, but he was feeding the widespread paranoia. The biggest hoax was more than a one-man effort, though. It took place at the Ninth and Arch Dime Museum in Philadelphia. Unlike accredited museums, dime museums were more like roadside attractions where the working class went for cheap entertainment. Charles Brandenburg, the owner of Ninth and Arch, and his right-hand man Norman Jeffries pretended they'd captured the Jersey Devil and they put it on display. To build buzz, Jeffries actually planted stories about the beast in a local paper. As the rumors spread, Jeffries contacted a taxidermist to fashion a creature they could pass off as the Jersey Devil. For some reason, the fake animal was swapped out for a live kangaroo. A few days later, the men painted stripes on the kangaroo and affixed wings to its back. Finally, Jeffries announced to the public that they could come see the caged Jersey Devil at the Ninth and Arch. For a small fee, of course. Soon, the museum brimmed with people, all eager to see the monster that had been dominating the news cycle. Visitors were taken to a stage where a curtain was closed. For a brief moment, Jeffries would open the curtain. Then people could catch a quick glimpse of the caged kangaroo with attached wings and painted stripes. Behind the curtain, a young boy prodded the kangaroo with a nail attached to a pointed stick. The kangaroo would lash out. Just as onlookers leaned in for a closer look, Jeffries pulled the curtain closed and then hurried the next group in. This spectacle only lasted for a few weeks before people realized it was a hoax. Jeffries gave the kangaroo back to an animal handler. Unsurprisingly, the Ninth and Arch permanently closed soon after. You'd think that would settle the rumors, but surprisingly, the Jersey Devil didn't fade into obscurity. The story had been inextricably woven into New Jersey's local mythology. In recent years, the monster has been an iconic part of East Coast pop culture. It's the mascot of an NHL hockey team. The state of New Jersey had even named it their official state demon. As for tourists and enthusiasts who come looking for the monster, they can visit a restaurant called Lucille's Country Cooking in Barnegat, New Jersey. Out front, there's a wooden carving of the beast, and patrons can buy shirts that say, I ate with a Jersey Devil. New Jerseyites seemingly adopted the Jersey Devil folklore with a sense of humor, but a few more harrowing encounters have circulated around the state. 
One night in 1997, Fran Coppola claimed that the creature visited her Smithsville Inn. Its formidable shadows stretched across the courtyard as she took out the trash. Frightened, Fran didn't linger for a closer look. And Scott Makem, an experienced hunter, said he saw the Jersey Devil swoop across the road while he was driving one morning in 2016. Makem attempted to follow the creature on foot, but eventually lost it as it careened through the trees above him. Makem was sure, though, that it couldn't have been a bird. These could be hallucinations or hoaxes, like many of the other disproven encounters from the past. Or perhaps, against all odds, the Jersey Devil still stalks the Pine Barrens, looking for its next victim. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on the Jersey Devil, amongst the many sources we used, we found Brian Regal's book, The Secret History of the Jersey Devil, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember... Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Lena Olson, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and Angela Jorgensen. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein and research by Chelsea Wood. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. These are not the people that you would normally associate with a cult. Do you think I need to be worried for my safety? I definitely think you should be prudent. This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd.